Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Hi all, and welcome once again to Once a DJ. I'm here with former resident of Liverpool's seminal nightclub Shibuku Shake Shake, London's Big Chill Bar, label curator, founding member of Eavesdrop Collective, an all-round shit-hot selector, Sarah Sweeney. She's going to talk to us about her journey through DJing and the role music's played through all aspects of her life. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Could you start by telling us about how music first came into your life? So I grew up in a seaside town called Southport in the northwest of England, which is famous for, most relevantly to me, the Southport Weekender. Um, But I grew up with loads of music around me all the time. You know, I'm a... I grew up in the 80s and you know, there were still big concerts going on about freedom and liberation. You had the Nelson Mandela um, concerts, you had Live Age, you had all of that stuff. So you, And there was a lot of political unrest going on. There was riots, there was strikes and I was you know, blissfully unaware of all of this stuff but just soaking in all that kind of musical, creative, connective stuff as I was... As I was um, you know, also playing with my Barbie doll and blah, blah, blah. And I kind of, you know, there was Sesame Street was going on, Top of the Pops was on, all of this kind of melting pot of music, which was, I suppose, on one hand, very rich and diverse. And then on the other hand, a little bit confusing because, you know, I'd be listening to Jason Donovan swooning over him and then I'd be doing The Running Man to... MC Hammer and it was all all of that kind of stuff was going on as I was growing up and there was always vinyl around me always <clears throat> so my mum and dad my dad very much was into the northern soul scene and he would talk about you know Motown and all that kind of stuff and we, we'd always have you know we'd have the stereo with the vinyl uh, player on top and we'd always have music whilst we were listening to uh, no we'd always have music while we were eating food um, so I suppose I had records around me a lot I had music around me a lot and it was a big part of my parents life and um you know as soon as I was kind of out and about in town um I'd go to you know Woolworths and pick through the, the bargain bin of the records there and I'd pull out a Della Soul 7 inch or I'd hang around in our price and listen to whole albums on the listening posts and stuff like that and we'd we'd get kicked out you know so it was, it was all of that it, it I was thirsty for it from a very young age because it was always around me. Um, And I think at the same time, you know, you had like this rave culture permeating through into mainstream music. So you'd be listening to Technotronic and you'd be listening to Mantronics and Public Enemy and, you know, Frankie Knuckles and all of this stuff was kind of coming at you on 
on the radio or on TV and, you know, you had TV programs that were promoting, you know, certain lifestyles and cultures, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and a Different World, all of this kind of stuff. So there was, there was just, you were just immersed in it the whole time. So then I, I kind of, yeah, started collecting records uh, and I had my cassettes and I had my first CDs and those kind of things. And, you know, my first CD was, I think, bless, I think it was Kenny Thomas uh, was one of my first CDs. Prince, uh, Diamond and Pearls was another one. So CDs were just kind of coming through as well. So um, I suppose when I was in my teenage years, I started going into Liverpool and started going to record shops because, you know, the cool baggy clothes, the stussy clothes were in one shop and you go into another, there'll be a record shop next door. And it was all very much these kind of, I suppose, cultural hotspots in cities, Athletes yeah. Palace, you know, all that, that kind of stuff in Manchester. So you'd buy your baggy jeans and then you go and listen to some records. And, you know, I was trying to be cool and pull out certain <laughs> tunes and stuff like that. And I think I bought my first proper bit of dance music vinyl I think it was like some I think it was even called the piano tune or something like that I can't remember who it's by but it was piano house so you know we had all that kind of k-class sound going on as well and you know the evolution of the hacienda coming through into what we were what we were listening to um you know me and my my kind of crew so that was kind of the backdrop of my musical um immersion I suppose through you know, my younger years and then coming into my teenage years and finding my own identity. And, um, you know, we had teen scenes then. So rave culture was definitely out and about now. And you go to like a Tuesday night or a Thursday night and you'd all kind of come together and be, you know, having a, you know, a rave with your can of Coke and, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, it was it was just there. It was very very present. People were DJing off vinyl and and what have you. So I I was I just was in it. I didn't even really think about it. It just it was part of my culture. It was part of kind of my my lineage and my my growing up. And I suppose going to um, it was very difficult to get into raves because I was underage, you know, I was 15, 16, that kind of thing. And it was all still a little bit taboo and what have you. But we had we had the Southport Weekender, which is which has just happened in Bognor. Um same name, different places now, but it was yeah. in in a in Pontins in Southport. And I had uh, a friend who whose parents would get us passes, you know, <laughs> sneaky passes. And we used to go in, you know, there was about, there was, there was a good handful of us that would go to the Southport Weekender underage. And that for me was just a massive eye opener into this whole world and the interconnectivity of all of these different genres that I'd been hearing and seeing, uh, you know, as I was growing up, but I'd never seen that music and people dancing on a dance floor and it not be, you know, on a screen or through a radio. And it was a very um, enlightening kind of moment for me where I actually felt like I'd, I'd come home. I knew where I belonged. Um, and I belonged in all of those rooms because I knew different pockets of music from, you know, the soul, the boogie, the disco, from the stuff I was listening to there, the house music, which was like really relevant to me, the kind of 
new soul, hip hop, all of that kind of thing, all merging together. And, and I kind of felt like, yeah, no, this all makes sense to me in terms of a musical universe and a musical family. And I, I was, I was really young when I kind of saw that. I remember going into um, the Connoisseur's Corner, it was, and um, I think it was uh, Dr. Bob Jones was, was playing. And uh, I remember walking into this room and seeing all these spats shoes and jazz dancing and and i i had never seen anything like it in my life and i was like you know it was a dark room it was red and then you just saw these people having dance-offs to this music that i kind of knew and i felt like i knew but you know it was it was just like mind-blowing that you could be listening to roger sanchez in one room and then you could be listening and seeing all of that going off in another room. And to somebody who's young, um, you know, it's, it's standard for a certain generation. That's kind yeah. of how it all happened. But for somebody that's kind of my age, I suppose, at that time, it was like, what, what is this kind of thing? So my whole world opened up then. And I really got into, I, re I think that really solidified me as a music lover and somebody who or who could see the connectivity of all these different kind of music that I've been exposed to yeah. in, a, in a different way on the dance floor. Having listened to quite a few of your mixes, I think that really comes across that balance between all the different musical styles that you've got. It's, it's really nice that that's carried all the way through since that experience. Yeah, I feel like it's imprinted on me, that, that whole era of, you know, uh, early well mid mid to late 90s is that was a really fertile time for for music to kind of have crossovers and be experimental and new genres were still coming out at that time you know you had garage you had your drum and bass you had your new jazz you had your broken beat you had your all this you know and they all had they're all relatives of jazz and disco and house and it's all kind of all these you know continuums and these little branches off 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 you know a particular genre of music and I've always you know been lucky that I can hear that and try and pull that together in 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 the way that I play um that was the biggest influence at a young age was that kind of melting pot of the 80s the kind of culture that was everywhere you know when you were going out and about and shopping and then, you know, the taboo of going out raving when you were underage and all, all of that exciting stuff. Um, so how did you start to move from music fan to DJ? Because I couldn't go out as much when I was a teenager. I had a group of friends and um, main, mainly boys. There was, you know, there was a couple of, you know, I had my best friends with me as well, but they would be all learning how to DJ and I had I had a childhood sweetheart and we very much you know they they very much encouraged me to um have a little cheeky go whilst you know everybody else was having a Pepsi Max break and those kind of <laughs> things so there was always a set of turntables at somebody's house and there was always a couple of tunes and you know people were practicing mixing and no we didn't have any tutorials or anything like that we'd probably gone to see people or you know friends had older siblings who'd given them a little bit of a lesson and we were all kind of botching it together I suppose and just giving it a go so I would have a little cheeky go when I was at 14 15 and I don't think 
I think it was a I think it was probably when I was about 17, 16, 17 when I when I started to kind of get really serious about it with with my partner and you know at that time you know it would have been 16 17 you had all the kind of positiva records you had the bomb coming out you had all of these you know these different records coming out you had amazing mix cds you could listen to as well so you can you could really hear the craft in a lot of these seminal for me seminal mixes so the ministry of sound masters at work um two djs four decks you know and this was still all being done on vinyl and Roger Sanchez, Hard Times, where he would be, he was a hip-hop DJ originally, but he would bring his kind of scratching talents into house and he would double up tunes and, you know, all of those kind of techniques and things that made music come alive even more yeah. um, on these CDs. And, you know, it was, it was a kind of birth of big clubs and brands and you know you had renaissance and you had cream becoming these things and cd compilations and all, you know, all of this stuff you kind of you were still being totally immersed in like the, the music the culture the mixes the djs you know so it was yeah it was the era of the superstar dj wasn't it that and also the mixtapes as well and, and radio you know um We'd have mixtapes that were being ha- handed around. You'd have a Laurent Garnier or a DJ Vertigo tape being handed around, and you'd listen to those, or you'd tune into Stu Allen on Key One Hundred Three, and you know, listening to him on a on a Friday night, and I'd be recording it on my you know, on my little stereo and listening to that cross genre of stuff. Then there was it was still really alive, and well, it's, it still is now, but you know. Do you think that there's something about that era of DJ? Because like you were saying about Roger Sanchez, a lot of them, like I love Kenny Dope, and Kenny Dope, again, he comes from that that multi-genre sort of background. Mm. And a, particularly if you had the people that were around in, I mean, New York in 1977, when it was the birth of punk, it was the birth of hip-hop, it was the birth of kind of dance music, really, wasn't it, through disco? Um yeah. And I guess there were people that that were influenced by all those different things rather than maybe the generation after that where it was a lot more about people going down their own specific route and and being a very specific type of DJ. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, those kind of DJs, it's a a particular era and I think there's a certain kind of generation as well in between, um, you know, Gen X and uh millennials where we were kind of we were at the tail end of all that rich musical influence and then we were at the beginning of this whole new kind of culture and way of being you know expressing yourself and coming together and you know it was it 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 was a really special time and yeah djs like kenny dope um i would you know mr scruff uh giles peterson um Stu Allen, I'd even say him, although he was more on the kind of ravey side of things, but he was very much influenced by hip hop and Jungle Brothers and all yeah. of that hip house and all of that kind of sound. So, yeah, I think I think that's kind of very much permeated through. And then I think as people became more niche or well known for a specific sound, then obviously they focused on that kind of what slightly separated them out as an eclectic DJ. And that's kind of created more streams and more um, avenues and, and stuff like that. But yeah, DJs like like Kenny Dope, Louis Vega. Um, I mean, I was a massive fangirl of Daft Punk, uh, of 
basement jacks of you know all of that kind of Armand van Helden I would be watching them you know as I got a bit older I'd go out to clubs and and be very much on the decks I would call myself a deck pigeon I wouldn't really move um, <laughs> I'd watch them DJ I'd watch what white labels they had in their bag so I could go to a record shop the next week and you know maybe pull some of those out all while I was learning how to you know make mixes and and do those things and I I you know I learned on a belt drive I think it was two belt no it was one 1200 and one belt drive and a and a awful little mixer so I really you know learned the push and pull of vinyl and that kind of tactile sensitivity with a 1210 and really you know it's like you're mixing a cake on a on a belt drive so the difference in dynamics as you kind of mixing because you just make you make do with all these little bits and pieces that you get donated yeah so it's so just just for the just for anyone that's listening that doesn't know belt drive turntables and direct drive turntables work in two different ways belt drive is effectively a belt that's turning the wheel direct drive is a magnet and there's a there's a significant difference in the quality between the two and the feel and the experience of them and how easy or hard they are to mix on so it's like trying to win a formula one race in a ford fiesta kind of it's that type of thing you've got to imagine so it's people trying to perform their absolute best but with some of the worst equipment so what were your first experiences um djing like and how did you get those first gigs so i um i got a job in a bar in southport called bar flavor and I've always followed my nose where I can kind of get a bit of a musical experience. And that was the guy that was running that used to run the Blue Note in London. It's a guy called Alan Turner. And I just got a job on the bar there. And um, just so, again, I could see and maybe weave on the way and and see what, what avenues were there for me to maybe play some of the records that I've been playing and stuff like that. Now, at the time... Um, Adele Roberts, who is a BBC Radio One DJ, uh, was DJing in in there. Um, she was a couple of years older than me. Um, she was DJing in Leeds. She was DJing in Southport. Um, she was back and forth. And I told her that I was a DJ and that I, you know, that I collected records. And actually, it was it was Adele Roberts who gave me who let me go on the decks in a bar for the first time. And she really encouraged me to to pursue that. Um, and I was still, you know, I was still DJing with my my um, younger, you know, childhood sweetheart. We were still practicing and and what have you. And we were really geeky about all that stuff and the, the art of it and the kind of, um, you know, we really geeked out when we made mixes on our on our CD recorder. You know, it was a meditative thing. It was a it was a spiritual thing that we we were doing you know and it was it, I don't think we realized it at the time but that kind of um curation and creation of a of, of a, a space to I suppose be open and and kind of mix music in that in that way I haven't haven't quite been able to replicate that mainly because my life has completely changed now but going from a bedroom DJ into uh into a bar was was really amazing obviously I could see what was going on when I was working and then I was given some you know weekday slots for 50 quid in a brown envelope you know and that paid for my next load of records kind of thing it was very much I was 
feeding it back into the local record shop or, you know, a bit further afield. So that was my first um, gig really was in it was in a bar and I was playing for five hours on a weekday and I was 18. Your first gig was five um, hours? Yeah, mate, I can, I can, I could do five, six hours set standing on my head. Um, yeah, but that's how I learned to be, um, as I suppose, as eclectic and, and really understand that the job of a DJ is to take somebody on a journey, you know, whether that is a four or five hour journey or a one hour journey or a two hour journey. And I actually, you know, for me, the optimum set is about, yeah, two to three hours would be perfect. Same. Um, but you know, four to five hours, there's, there's so much music that even now, you know, there's so much music you can go through and there's so many BPMs that all make sense. And, you know, you start off with something at 70 and you end up, you know, at 150 BPM and you told a whole story and you can even loop it back and mix it back into it. So it's, you know, for me, it's kind of, you know, it's just, it's just part of the sounds that I grew up in and there's so many different avenues to go off on. So anyway, I, I, uh, got my first job in a bar and, <clears throat> Um, and I think that is really where I learned my musical values as well. Um, you know, the guy that ran the bar and he, and he, uh, ran the blue note, he was able to polarize all of that musical stuff I was talking about earlier, which was in the eighties, there was a lot of, um, you know, change going on, the strikes, the riots, the, you know, the the civil unrest in Northern Ireland and he was, you know, comparing what was going on over there for him, um, you know, likening it to the civil rights movement and layering it up with what Public Enemy was really about, telling me about, you know, civil rights movements like Donny Hathaway and um, Aretha Franklin. And I got a, I got a different education that I wasn't really expecting. I had some context around the music that I loved. Um, I felt it, but I didn't understand it, you know, as a 18 year old white girl from Southport, I'm, yeah. I was never going to fully understand. You, you, you can't simulate that lived experience. No, no. And, you know, and I think a lot of the stuff that I listened to and observed and watched even, you know, even just watching the Blues Brothers as a, you know, as a younger person or all that kind of stuff, it was all, it was all very exciting and, you know, kind of had different connotations for me um as somebody looking from the outside into you know a cultural snapshot and for me the music then became you know I became a guest in a lot of that uh music then for me and it was really important that I understood and honored you know some of the background of what that music came from um and I do include disco and I do include house in that you know that was disco music um, was was liberated, you know, queer communities in New York and and all kinds of stuff. There was all, there's a, there's so it's so rich, it's so attached to liberation and freedom and expression of the self that you know it's important to remember that that's why those spaces were created, and you have to honour the legacy of some of those spaces for me. Um, that was really important. So I I. I got a, a job in a bar in a seaside town where I played for five hours, but I also got a musical education that I wasn't really expecting to have. Amazing. So how did you go on from there? 
I always was excited about how you could always, you know, if you were behind the decks and somebody came to talk to you, there would be always a, a way of finding, you know, you'd always find a way to connect. So if somebody's approaching you about your music, unless they're asking for something to dance to, unless you go, everyone's dancing, what are you talking about? But, <laughs> you know, uh, when you had somebody asking what tune it was or this, that and the other. So I, you know, I ended up talking to a lot of people and just kind of following threads and, um, from there, uh, I was playing, you know, the salsa movement was going on as well, you know, in all these bars that I was kind of playing it's salsa night from, you know, six to eight 30. And then if you could start at nine, so there was always a crossover with something else that was going on and some movement. Um, and I, this guy from, uh, Liverpool called Roger, he ran the Samba school, uh, in Liverpool. And he asked me to go and play either side of the Samba band playing. So then I, I went over to Liverpool and I ended up being the DJ in between a samba band in a club called um, The Mask. <clears throat> and that was really exciting as well. So I was then DJing with live samba bands yeah, yeah, yeah. and all very exciting stuff and and just buzzing off, off you know, kind of all, all of that thing. And then in, in there, there was um, a couple of promoters from another night that went on in The Mask called Chibuku Shake Shake. You know, it was seminal night. Again, they, you know, they'd be putting Giles on um, one night, and they'd have a lame bushwhacker on another night, kind of thing. So, I got asked if I would like to be a resident at that um, at that club, and of course, I said yes. And weirdly, um, you know, the person that I learned to DJ with, they had also been asked, but separately because we were <clears throat> gone our separate ways. I'd gone off to uni, la la la. But we, you know, we were kind of um, ended up playing in a lot of lineups. So we still had that affinity going on musically. And um, so that was made it a lot easier to kind of be, I suppose, a little bit more out there with with other people and and kind of bigger name DJs, so to speak. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying Winter DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from winterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code DJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Yeah. So did you not do uni then? I did. I did go to uni. I went to uni for a couple of years. I went to Nottingham, uh, Nottingham Trent. I did fine art. Um, but I was, 
also really into my music still. So part of the reason why I went to Nottingham Trent was because there was a club called The Bomb yeah. there. And they had uh, DJs over from Chicago. So you'd hear, you know, Derek Carter, um, DJ Gemini, DJ Heather would come over. Um, Kelvin Andrews was there. He was a, he was a resident um, and, you know, got, got talking to him. So yeah, I was I was there, but I was also pinging back up north as well, or going to Leeds, or you know, I was very much kind of following my nose with a lot of things. Going to London, going to Bar Rumba. It didn't really matter what night of the week you went to Bar Rumba because there was always something great on there. So 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 DJ and music really took took precedence over over university. Yeah, it did. I think also looking back hindsight, I definitely stuff suffered a bit of a kind of um i suppose uh, a bit of a breakdown there and what i didn't know until very recently is that i you know i had um adhd and i i was very much into everything that's why i was you know pinging here pinging there enjoying this painting that you know i was still painting music it was it was just music 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 the whole time um and i kind of decided that that's really you know what I was concentrating on more was the music that I was painting to, and um, I I took a gap year or two, and I never really went back. Right. I went back to Southport, um, worked in a record shop, um, and then from that again, I just followed my nose and asked for work experience because I'm still, you know, internships, work experience. It was still a way to get a foot in the door um, at a time where I was, you know, I was still relatively supported um to be able to do so and um you know lucky in that in that respect um so yeah i kind of started widening my musical family uh manchester liverpool leeds sheffield nottingham london you know i was kind of just following my nose with a lot of kind of musical influences and and going to concerts and you know gigs and clubs and stuff like that so it was very it was important to me it was part of my life force to be to be chasing that um but then you know obviously I needed to get a job so I got a summer job in um in the record shop back in Southport uh, it was around yeah 2000 2001 and yeah I just kind of started picking up the phone I was ordering records you know the owner let me order records whilst he was away DJing in Singapore um and I got chatting to a distributor um, on the telephone and explained that I was, you know, there part-time helping out. And he said, do you want to come and do some work experience? So I went, yeah. So I went and did some work experience at an independent um, record distributor called Vital at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I was sorting out records while I was like, you know, a kid in a toy shop I'm like all these tunes all these records sorting all this music out and it was just vinyl upon vinyl sorting out promo packs understanding what how you know you've got to wait for pressing and you know found out another layer of the music industry really so for me it was all it was all a bit of a treasure you know treasure hunt kind of thing following the clues and finding out about everything and immersing myself into that so I did my work experience and, um, you know, still had my uh, residencies playing, playing uh, midweek at the weekend, what have you, 
playing in Liverpool. So was that was that the most that you were playing in a week at that point? Yeah, probably. And how many times a week would you have been playing in total then? Oh, at least three or four times a week. Um, so I might do a, a you know a Friday, a Sunday, and a Wednesday um, with the occasional you know cover shift or or what have you. Um, and I was also like, you know, popping back on the bar and helping there as well, depending on what was, you know, so I was just, I was just kind of around, um, here, here, there and everywhere really. Um, but yeah, I was just, I was just in it a lot, you know, I might be warming up for, for, um, Roots Maneuver or I might be, you know, doing a five hour set in the, in the, in the bar in Southport kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of what I was doing, and then I did my work experience in in London, and then I made the dive and and moved there. Um, I didn't have a job, but I thought. I mean, also at the time, what was happening was the whole broken beat West London sound was permeating through. So you'd had the new Eurekan Soul album and all of that stuff, and all 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 those kind of that rich stuff was happening and then and then this sound came out that I it really resonated with me and it was the broken beat scene yeah although they said that there was never a scene uh <laughs> it was a collective kind of thing but it is you know it's they're, they're what I I for me I moved to London so I could be closer to that scene because it wasn't happening so much up north so did you have a good contact base in London then at the time that you moved there or were you moving down and having to kind of build a network from relatively from scratch well i had a i had a couple of people that i knew there the person that um asked me to go and do work experience um introduced me to a couple of people so when i when i went there um relatively blind um i'd moved with a friend um or they'd moved they were moving there and then i thought oh do you know what i'm i'm gonna get out of southport i'm i'm gonna go I'm gonna go to the big city and follow the sound of the broken beat kind of thing and um you know i know i sound massively cliched but i, <laughs> I genuinely love that music yeah. and um so i kind of moved there without not without really much of a network i suppose i had a couple of people in southport that you know i would dj with and we connected over music and then they'd had a friend in london and and that they said oh you know can you can you just if there's any jobs going or anything like that so I did whilst I was first moved there I did uh I moved stores I did you know kind of move boots when you know you go into the shop and they've changed the aisles and you're like where's the blah gone they've moved you know I was the person that would go in at night and move everything around mm. like a naughty little elf um but <laughs> paid to do it and then you know that's kind of what I did whilst I was establishing myself in London and I got then I got a job in a, another uh, record distributors, but that was an exporter, import-export. So that was international record sales that I was then working with. So whereas uh, when I did my work experience at the at Vital at that time, it was mainly UK labels going out into the world. Well, um, an exporter is, I suppose, a bit more grassroots, fluid kind of, you know, you're bringing stuff in, you could sell some stuff um to other distributors you know it was it was there was a lot of music coming in there yeah and a lot of vinyl just just one question then that the job yeah. at boots it, in yeah. hindsight was that quite a good fit for adhd i'm saying this is somebody <laughs> who doesn't know a lot about but if you're kind of like constantly having to go from here to here to here 
doing little bits and bobs. It was it wasn't a, it wasn't a great fit for me. It was it wasn't a it wasn't <laughs> no. It was it was a means to an end yeah. to make sure I could you know still eat you know the um uh the the following my nose and hyper focusing on music that was I think is definitely a massive component for me and all the therapy um, when it comes to my um, ADHD and it's a lot I I get a lot of my dopamine out of it mm. you know um, not so much moving the nail clippers to the sandwich <laughs> aisle etc cetera, etc cetera. it's not di- didn't float my boat but I just did what I needed to do yeah. you know at that time um. So yeah, I got a job in an exporters uh, through a friend, again a friend from Southport um, called Nick Reese, who was a DJ, and then he moved to London. And um, again, I got totally immersed, records all over the place. You know, it was again just a kid in a candy shop kind of thing, and um, and I they let me buy records as well, and I had um, a few little moments where it was like, oh, I, I I'm a part. I don't like. So again, I sound cliched here, but there were certain records like the uh, Red Astaire Follow Me. I bought that up, you know, they let me buy that. I was like, this is going to be massive. And, you know, in terms of our scene, that um, Follow Me tune was was really, you know, a, a big a big underground tune. Um, yeah, I think I had that. Yeah, so it, it was kind of, it's nice to be at the beginning of a record breaking with your community and that kind of thing. So I was still, I was still enjoying that and, and the hunt and the what's, you know, what just had been mesmerized by this, this is going to be great kind of thing and trying to get it out to as many people. So I suppose it's that it's a DJ mindset, but without actually playing it to lots of people, but pushing it out to everywhere. It's still, it's still part of the buzz for me was, was to put, to share music whether it was selling it or playing it, it was, you know, it was, I just loved doing that. Um, I did some time in the exporters and then I ended up getting a job in uh, Vital where I did my work experience. So I worked in the international department there and then I worked at, went over to the UK um, side of things. So again, that was me dealing directly with record shops. So I was, I had like an international record sales network I suppose at the time and then I had back to the UK so I'd be selling to record shops all over the cities and you know having a weekly chat with all these people who again were pushing music out there but at this at this point in time you've kind of got the um you know CDs are doing their thing vinyl is very much for the DJ and then the you know Napster came on the scene and then the digital kind of revolution was happening all at the same time and it was having a massive effect on on you know record sales everyone could get their music for free now mm-hmm. you know it was it changed everything um you know quite i think quite a lot of djs were getting their music for free and i certainly was taking some of my promos and going to goya just around the corner and doing little swaps and those kind of things so there's always an exchange of music happening um but i really think that you know that that digital um revolution really shook things up and changed things for a lot of people um certainly from for the music industry as well um just just at that point then sorry well um while you were doing this work were you djing much or djing kind of fall by the wayside a bit oh yeah i was djing as well i was djing in london i had a residency 
um, a little bit later, I uh, had a residency at the Big Chill Bar. I was still playing for Jibuku um, at the time. So there was a night that we had. We had two nights, Jibuku London, where we had a night at the Heavenly Social. And I was there every Friday, more or less. And it would be me and a few other DJs that would play there. And then we had a night in 93 Feet East as well. So, you know, the the night in Liverpool was then permeating into London as, as a lot of the residents kind of moved there. So I would be asked to play at various nights in London um, or back in Liverpool, um, the occasional night, night in Manchester. And, you know, I'd be going back when the Southport Weekender was on as well. And... Um, playing after parties and those kind of things. So yeah, I was still very much DJing um, and finding my feet. So how old would you have been at this point? Is this kind of approaching your mid-20s? Yeah, so I'm about 22, 23. So was that kind of the, was that kind of the peak for you or did it keep growing? Um, well, I guess I was just in it and in the middle of it all and didn't really see anything kind of changing um you know I was just doing my thing and connecting with people and enjoying the scenes that I was kind of um involved in and you know going to lots of different nights and one particular night um almost 20 years ago now I went to Herbal um in Shoreditch and it was hospitality uh but I wasn't going for that I was going for a, a producer called Andreas Sarg, who was swell session, who had a kind of nice soulful, broken, kind of Swedish soulful, broken twist uh, album out, and I really liked that album. Uh, they didn't, they didn't turn up, but there was another artist on called Landslide, who I kind of heard of, um, but it wasn't really the kind of drum and bass. I've touched on a little bit of drum and bass, but it wasn't really my my thing. I was really focused on house and soul, blah blah blah. Anyway, so I was I was working at one of these distributors and we just got this promo in and I approached Landslide and said, um, have you got, and he thought I was going to say, can I leave me or something like that. And uh, and I said, have you got the sagey remix of um, Fertile Ground the moment? Knowing damn well he didn't have it, I was just flexing. So <laughs> I think because <laughs> we'd only just got it in that day and he kind of was a little bit taken aback, I think. And he he went, no, I haven't, but I've got, you know, this and I've got that. And he played a couple of tunes for me and um, I just I just loved it. You know, he, he played, I think it was Alison, David and Afronaut's Dream, Dreams Come True or something like that. I can't remember the name. I get a bit embarrassed about it because it is actually a really lovely song. Um, but that that night, I met I met Tim. I met Landslide, and um, you know, still working in the industry. He was a record producer. He was about to go on tour with London Electricity, um, and uh, was making his own music and um, and stuff. So we, you know, we we hung out and. We hung out a lot, and then, um, yeah, in two thousand and four, <clears throat> found out we were pregnant. So I was twenty, just turned twenty-four. So were you planning to have kids? No, don't plan anything. That's ADHD. <laughs> you try, it all goes wrong. So at the moment, at that time, I was very much like, 
the universe is, you know, leading me here and leading me there. And I was, you know, I was the, before I even knew the yes man was a thing, I was like, yes, you know, it's all part of my journey and, and all of that stuff. But, but no, I, I hadn't planned to have children that early. So how, how did that feel then, given, given the lifestyle that you had and, and the ambitions that you had? Um, yeah, was it kind of panic or was it still like, this is the universe just giving me this path? So in terms of my ambitions, my ambitions was to be connected and share music. That was that was really what it was. And there was a little bit of, you know, ego thrown in there and trying to trying to get certain places and um and what have you. But ultimately, you know, I was just kind of believing that, you know, all the, all things happen for a reason and I was kind of a little bit fatalistic about it. I was 24 when I found out and 25 when I when when I had Oscar and I was still DJing I was still DJing while I was pregnant um there's a great picture of me DJing at Chibuku's I think it was their fifth it would have been their fifth birthday at Nation in Liverpool where back you know when I was younger I say younger um was watching all my favorite DJs play I was I was playing in the main room so it was a really amazing experience for me to be six months pregnant DJing you know probably not a great idea as everyone was still smoking in clubs at that point <laughs> but um you know my my son was was with me when I was DJing and I, I just felt on top of the world I didn't I didn't feel like it was going to impact me at that point being pregnant because mm. um, I was very much living in the moment and as I say I was quite young and perhaps a little little bit naive um but yeah, so I um, carried on DJing up until I think I was about eight months pregnant. And then I thought I'd better take it easy now because I was still lugging records around, although still had CDs, you know, CDs were a little bit lighter to take around. With it's you. a lot of carrying and just a lot of traveling as well, isn't it? I mean, it's a little bit easier, like I said, because it was it was CDs and a few and a few records at that point, you know, CDJs were everywhere. So it wasn't too bad, but I think it was just the the late nights but again I thought well I don't know how long I'm going to be out of it so I'm going to try and get as much in as I possibly can mm. um yeah and I had a great time and I do think that you know him being in utero when I was playing and doing all these things is kind of again I was talking about how I was immersed with it you know and uh as I was growing up and he was definitely heard the boom 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 uh, along with my heartbeat and his kind of thing of the, of the dance floor, so you know it's all, it's all, it was all very cool and nice, and I didn't really think about you know me, my future as a DJ or anything like that, because also I was kind of raised in an era where it was like you know women can have the same as men kind of thing uh, in terms of um, career, or they should be able to. And there's very clear messages about that. So I just thought, well, no, that's just a given. Um, and, you know, I still have my job in the record distributors as well. So I was still in touch with music. So it wasn't my main bread and butter, my ambition, my of DJing, this, that, and the other. I just wanted to be around music. That was that was my thing. So what was the experience after he was born? I take it you probably pulled the DJing back. I, I don't know how much, but... Was it a bit of a shock to the system 
I mean, you know, you've obviously got a little baby to be focusing on, but is there a bit of a feeling isolated? Because I think for a lot of parents, just say you just go on maternity, paternity, whatever it is from any sort of job, it, it, you can feel a bit lost if there's just you. I don't know if you had like people around you in daytimes or not. I think it can be a very isolating experience. And if you're in something that's such a social world, did that really hit hard or did or was it easy to adjust to? Well, again, I think with with this particular era around 2005, um, you've got the, the dawn of the kind of the next stage of the internet and technology mm. and being connected and um you know i still i still did a bit of djing whilst he was he was relatively young um you know once the whole kind of breastfeeding period had had ended i went back to work after six months you know because that was the norm then uh so i went back working three days a week and so i was still very much connected with music and and what have you and i was still doing a bit of djing um here and there but not as frequently but I didn't feel disconnected because um, because things like MySpace came along. Mm. So there was a whole other music community. And again, that kind of led to talking to people online that you wouldn't normally have access to, um, listening to music and kind of them having a very direct relationship with people. Whereas, you know, that, that removing a layer of that mystique and, um, and what have you. So I I still felt like I was part of something because everybody was still engaging with each other and this new you know these new spaces so yeah and, and myspace was a was a really good platform for musicians as well wasn't it i don't know if you ever read a track wrote a piece about it um a few years ago it's it's i'll try to get out for you it's really interesting because as as a social media platform for use for musicians nothing's replicated its success no which is which is a massive shame. Yeah, and I, I and I don't I think yeah well obviously you know Facebook came along and and had a slightly different model, which I think mashed up MySpace and Friends Reunited mm. uh, in a in a particular way. But for me, my MySpace I've met friends on there that I that I'm still connected to now and very much part of my music family. Um, yeah, so I I didn't feel as disconnected because it coincided with a different way of connecting with people. So I was still able to listen to music, have my finger on the pulse, talk to people, you know, in a way that I perhaps hadn't been able to earlier, where you were relying on record shops, you were relying on DJ magazines, you were relying on TV programs, you were, there was a whole industry behind it and it kind of stripped, stripped a layer away in some respects, but also it opened out a musical community in 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 a lovely way so i i didn't feel as disconnected as i possibly could have done had i have had my child five years earlier yeah um you know so so again i'm just kind of using the things the threads that are around me to stay connected and be part of something you know whether it's to a lesser or greater extent but for me it was enough um so yeah i went you know i still was working um one baby london you know my partner was working uh and doing his own is doing his own thing um and i was you know i was kind of 
finding vocalists and still kind of doing what I could do, following threads and trying to, you know, kind of connect little bits and pieces as well, which was which was good. So I was learning about, I suppose, from the outside looking in, the what goes into the creation of a of an album, um, and kind of learning that. So I'm always looking and and kind of picking up on stuff. Just, just crazy about it all. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of going on and then I moved to another distributor and became a label manager um and that was great because I was hunting labels out and working with them um and again that whole kind of digital revolution was forging forward and I kind of got to see what that looked like in an independent music um space as well and how certain distribution companies were folding because they weren't getting with the program yeah uh so to speak and then others were flourishing and i was lucky enough to be with one that was flourishing called kudos records so again i had another layer of all of that still surrounded by records still you know getting tickets to this that and the other still very much involved as and when i could but obviously kind of reduced down but if you're working in music you don't really feel like you're missing out when you you know connected to it in that way it I was still getting a buzz out of it so you know surrounded by records and and what have you so it was it you know that kind of carried on and then um I suppose a big change that happened for for me and for us was my second uh child coming along in 2008 so we you know two two kids one bed flat London um you know we we had to make um a change really and we moved out of london um a little bit around the houses but we ended up in um in wales uh moved a couple of times um and yeah so 2008 um i basically said goodbye to my music life for a little bit um, I didn't know it at the time. Um, I still kind of hoped that I would be able to do my usual, you know, invisible strings connections with wherever I was ending up. Um, but it it's not as easy when you've got children. Two's a lot more time consuming than one, isn't it? Because you can't just like, you can't go, you have this, I'm going to go off and do whatever I'm doing. It's like, you have this, well, who's going to have this other one? <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's it, yeah, it is kind of like exponentially difficult, I think, to do things outside of it. And then just 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 for fun, you know, between moving out of London and moving to um, Wales via South End, um, I found out I was pregnant again. So <laughs> I had two babies in eleven months. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that definitely then, you know, my, my life completely changed. I was in a different um, place. I didn't have my support network, really. Um, you know. Plus, I think in terms of DJing, and, and tell me if I'm being presumptuous here, please, your body's going through a lot of trauma multiple times, and DJing yeah. isn't a purely mental activity. It's pretty physical. Yeah. Um, so there must be that sort of impact, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, I think once I moved out of London, the DJing dwindled somewhat, somewhat for me. I, you know, I still had my residency at the Big Chill Bar while I was, you know, 
pregnant with my second child, still trying to do do it the way I did it with my first pregnancy. But again, that was kind of, you know, presenting itself in the reality that it was. And then, um, yes, and then, and then moving on uh, and then having another child and then moving to Wales. Um, it, it, you know, it was very clear that my what my job was which was raising these kids you know um and that that was okay I felt okay about that because considering I was you know 29 now and I had had such a rich experience from such a young age you know from being like 17 going out 18 professionally DJing working in the music industry getting huge immersion and all of this stuff I probably packed a lot in, a lot more in than than other people my age who are still trying to find their feet or they've just come from uni or they need to pivot or they've just found music. So I was, I'd, I'd got a lot in. Yeah. I'd played with some big names. I had no regrets in terms of, you know, reaching my goals and ambitions or whatever. I'd, I'd played with a lot of people that I really, really admired. I'd had amazing opportunities. I was playing when I was pregnant. I'd you know, knew a lot of people. I love their music, and and I had a you know a good um, friendship with, and um, you know I felt like I was part of a music family. So for me, I was okay in letting all that go because I was now part of something bigger through selling music and supporting through album production and all those kind of things. I, I had a different relationship with it. So the the DJing is a way of me expressing my musical tastes and my feelings at a given time um, and connecting and sharing with other people. But whilst you're kind of bringing kids up, the records went, you know, the records went to the studio because that's make way for toys <laughs> and kids books and those kind of things. So those lovely Ikea units that all the tunes were in, um, you know, the records got packed up um, and, you know, once I walked in and, the toddlers at the time, they were taking the records out of the sleeves and playing frisbee with my records or posting them in between the floorboards. And I was like, <laughs> this has to stop. This is not, this is not working. <laughs> so, you know, um, that was the moment really when the music left my surroundings. I've been surrounded by music for five, six years mm. and, um, you know, in came the Bob the Builder toys and, you know, in the night garden and all that kind of stuff. So I I was, yeah, just being a mum, just being a mum. And I, I think I kind of lost touch with a lot of music at that point. Um, I think once, once you've got three kids under five that you're looking after, um, and you're in a new city and you're making a new beginning and what have you. Um, yeah, that's that's just your whole world. Um, mm. But again, like I said, I felt like I was part of a music. I still have friends and, and what have you and, you know, kind of living vicariously through them being able to go out and, you know, see things and being connected with them online as well. Again, that was a massive um bridge for me to stay connected with people um and at this time you know there were a couple of other women that I knew that were DJs you know that were having children as well so 
then I was having a different relationship with people. You know, there was the people that didn't quite have children yet. And then there was the people that did. And the music was there, you know, is that heartbeat, that connected, that vocation, that, you know, that place you can put a record on and you're instantly back on a dance floor and you, you, you're constantly, you know, you can always come back to a certain time and space and a memory just with one tune. So, so the internet, again, it was Facebook at this time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was still able to connect with people that I'd met on MySpace who'd now migrated over. Um, and yeah, that kind of community was still ongoing. So I, again, I still kind of felt connected to it. And then I suppose when the kids were a little bit older, I put on a night here in Wales, in Cardiff, in a bar called Goody Who. And so I still, I still kept it up. So I went from doing like you know, three, four nights a week down to once a month when I moved here and I had three kids. Um, but that's difficult setting up again. You have to be really on it to be an events promoter. Mm. And I don't have the energy, I don't think, not with kids, you know, being a mum and, you know, cooking dinner and then trying to do this, trying to sort this out, trying to sort that out and and then trying to promote a night and work like you haven't got kids and have, you know, have kids like you haven't got, you know, a job and pushing this and promoting this and, and what have you. I did that mainly for my own so social stuff and for me to still feel connected and relevant but i was you know i was just playing the music that i loved yeah um and and had a few guests coming through but um yeah and i was still kind of helping other people put albums out i helped lyricale put an album out um and was you know just trying to stay keep my fingers you know in there a little bit um whilst i was going through the uh the maelstrom of being a mum um being a parent so hey guys i hope you're enjoying Winter dj i wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on so i've teamed up with sure shot shop to create some Winter dj 45 rpm adapter clamps these are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup these are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oneadj.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides, and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. So in and amongst raising three boys, how did you manage to keep your toe in with DJing? It seems like you never 100% left it. It was very important that I was still able to go and do a little bit of DJing every now and again, and my partner really understood and supported that. 
So I was kind of having little escapes and um, DJing with other mums and we had a night called Mums A Word um, where we were just sharing music and, and kind of, yeah, having a dance, having a sing, uh, expressing ourselves and then going back to motherhood kind of thing. And that was, you know, one, I think once a year or something like that when the, when the kids were little. And then I had a few you know, kind of forays in playing in Cardiff, but by then when you've got kids that are in primary school and climbing trees or roofs or you know three boys is a, is a lot of energy <laughs> um and you know i was i was just in the thick of motherhood really um and i very much kind of wasn't i didn't have that dj music identity i was very much mum um for a very long time well, i'd be mum forever when i um and also off the back of that, I was still kind of, you know, connecting to people online and kind of, I suppose, current affairs as well. You know, we had the conservative government coming in, the whole kind of rhetoric around asylum seekers and, um, you know, you had smiley culture um, incident happening and, you know, a lot of stuff around um, inequality racism within the police that was still kind of coming up a lot on my feeds and you know I think because I was taught about that in a musical way as well it kind of started kind of coming up in my mind a lot and having children as well you're acutely aware of the world that you're bringing them up in um, and I kind of wanted to uh, without sounding like a you know a white middle-class white savior complex i wanted to make the world a better place so um i signed up to do a degree again unbeknown that i had adhd uh i thought yeah i could do a degree in psychology with a one-year-old yada 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 um i did that part-time and i wanted to do psychology because i wanted to get into mental health um because a lot of the stories that I was seeing was about um, inequalities in mental health care provision for certain communities and it, it kind of upset me a lot because I think a lot of the mental health issues in black communities, um, asylum seeking communities came from their, you know, their life experiences in their environment that wasn't really of their making or doing and they were being systematically failed by our systems again which is what i learned in a roundabout way through music and then obviously expanded upon that but then quickly i realized you know psychology was too data driven and a little bit dry and i switched over to health and social care um degree and got work experience well work placement as part of my degree in an equality and diversity charity in a department that was commissioned by the NHS uh, here in Cardiff to work with um, minority communities. I hated that word. Um, and I ended up doing a lot of community support work for um, the asylum seeking community here in Cardiff. And, um, you know, again, that was a big eye opener in terms of what inequality looked and felt like. Um, and I've worked in mental health and then I've worked in um, other 
inequalities uh, or equalities charity. So I work for a women's charity as well to get uh, people more involved in political and public life because as I was finding out more about inequalities and um, failings of the systems, I wanted to get more involved in politics and talking to people and trying to influence and advocate and support for change, you know, better treatment of, of everyone. Um, but specifically marginalised communities. And I do think that, you know, music definitely played a part in my the structure of my values and my beliefs about what kind of person I wanted to be and what kind of world that I'd hope that my children and other children would would grow up into. Um, so I was doing that for some time. You know, I was still kind of doing my music, but again, I just kind of lost a little bit of contact with what was going on. I still was in contact with music producers and, you know, but they were more like and. and promoters and stuff but they're more like friends rather than anything to do with my working world or the world that I was concentrating on um and, and motherhood so uh you know the friends that were parents we spoke about being parents we didn't speak about music anymore kind of thing so mm. it was just you know it, was, it just evolved and moved so around um 2019 I started a dedicated Instagram account to kind of log my musical journey. Um, and the reason why I did that is because whilst I was having all those great gigs and this, that and the other, you know, there was no phones anywhere. There was no real social media. There was not very many photos of me. Um, and I didn't really have very many mixes that I still had hold of because you know, I didn't have all the equipment. I was parenting, I was working, or they got lost with friends or, you know, all, all of that stuff. So I was really trying to pull together the, the, the threads of my own DJing journey. I didn't know if I was going to go back to it, but for me, I wanted to, I wanted to go down a trip down memory lane, really. Um, and I kind of started pulling together, you know, my first cassette player was my Fisher, Fisher Price mm. tape and, you know, my first tape was Eddie Grant and you know all, all of these kind of things and just just for my own memory really to reactivate that part of me so that was a really nice starting point for me and I always said DJing will never leave me music will never leave me as part of me so uh, like I said I've, ne I've never felt like I had to give it up um, as such but um, it had to take a back seat but it was always there and as I was kind of doing that, um, I went to We Out Here. So this is just pre-lockdown. I went to We Out Here. So that's the Giles Peterson Festival, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I went to the first one of that. So, you know, in lieu of the Southport Weekender, because it wasn't really going on that much, or it might have been, but it, it wasn't in Southport. So to me, it was, you know... <laughs> I wanted the sticky floors. I wanted the dark, dingy rooms. I didn't yeah. want the bright lights of mine heads. You know, I, I went and, you know, I, I just, it, it's of an era for me and I want to protect, preserve that memory and that feeling. So I went to We Out Here and it felt like the perfect combo of the Southport Weekender, that musical lineage, that family and the big chill festival. It was that kind of combination of the two. And I thought, oh, it's back that feeling came back that that connection 
the fact that I, you know we were walking in all the tents and you know I had my family with me now so we were of an age where we could you know enjoy the music and they could enjoy it, it was small enough um, and the kids knew all, a lot of the music because we would still play music to them um, so we we had a great time there and we reconnected with a lot of people that we hadn't seen because we lived in Wales and you know we we connected with people from up north and down south and it was just it was like a family reunion uh really we out here in 2019 and part of that uh reunion was re rekindling friendship with um some women called uh Fran and Andrea um who were both playing and you know had I'd kind of hung out with them I DJ'd with them uh back in my 20s and we'd all become parents we were all mums and so it was just really nice to see them and reconnect with them and you know we we got talking about um how life had changed since becoming a mum and how music was still important to us and you know I told them about mums a word and they had little pockets of people women that they were DJing with up north and I said oh we should you know we all were all saying oh maybe we should get something together and that's how um eavesdrop was formed and what is eavesdrop collective eavesdrop collective is a collective um of 15 women from across the uk got people in leeds liverpool london bristol cardiff and and um, manchester and we're all women selectors we're all of a certain generation that i'm you know kind of talking talking about my my generation in between uh the gen x's and the you know the kind of rave days as such and you know the millennials the boiler room generation i will call them so we're kind of that that little pocket there where we still got one foot in last century but we're still we're we're very much in this one kind of thing yeah. and we're mums um and carers and you know and what have you so we formed this collective um off the back of meeting of being reunited i suppose at, at we out here and um and then lockdown happened. So we formed this collective and then we couldn't do anything with it. So yeah, it was just a case of continuing to, I suppose, um, catalogue my DJ experiences and how I kind of came into it, which is, you know, kind of picture version of this interview, I guess. And we were, you know, we were conversing and talking and sharing our experiences and, and helping each other so it it we kind of came together um in a period where we couldn't actually play any music together but we could make mixes so everybody got very diy and you know we're sharing mixes and i think i also started doing a radio show with tim in lockdown as well so that very much was a catalyst for me to get back into playing regularly so we had like a commitment to do a show a week and it was a two hour show and it kind of went out. And that was that was a form of therapy for us, a reconnection to music, a reconnection to, you know, how we kind of came together, I suppose. And it was a it was a ritual. So I kind of got that ritual back again that I didn't have for a very long time because of lockdown and that commitment to doing the radio show. So that really enabled me to um, put myself out there with with Tim and um, my brother as well, who who then moved to Wales and also as a DJ. 
so the radio show and the Instagram account and then the eShop Collective, they all kind of fulfilled certain elements of what I need to kind of re-blossom, yeah. I suppose. And that's also coinciding with the fact that, you know, once we kind of got out of lockdown, we out here in 2021 was one of the only kind of festivals that was going on. And by then, the eShop Collective, we'd all kind of been building up to this, uh, you know, it, we, it was born at We Out Here. So we were kind of invited to go and do a takeover at one of the stages at, at We Out Here, which is brilliant, you know. And obviously there was the Me Too movement that was going on. There was, um, you know, George, George Floyd movement was going on and, and the, the lack of representation um, and diverse lineups was not just lineups, but in general, being mindful of, you know, diversity and inclusion and opportunities, we were able to come with a different energy and we were very much welcome with open arms and we were really, really lucky uh, and blessed to have, you know, to have that support. So collectively, I would say that we've all kind of been able to re-enter a world that possibly could have felt closed off had we had not come together and had I have not been doing my um, radio show as well I probably wouldn't be as confident to play out um, the way that I do now yeah so you know lockdown was a a bit of a a period of reflection of like what's important what fills our souls we all had to do a little bit of that for me you know and a lot of others finding a way to reconnect over music was really, really important. And then when we came out of that, I felt like I was prepared to go back into the world kind of thing. And I also was able to reflect on the richness of my experience beforehand, the music that I've collected and the the lovely community that I'm part of. So um, it was it was really great to be able to kind of go back into that world. And also, you know, just putting myself out there with, with people that I know and you know playing in a record shop well it's you know it's great for us because we're in the really lovely environment where we're welcome and we're supported and it's you know it's it's great for them because you've got people going and they've got footfall and people buying music because people don't really do that very often anymore and we need to encourage that um so yeah it was just a case of I just wanted to get out and play and some places um you know, you do it for free, you do it as a get together and off the back of that you are you're being asked to play places, which is which is great. Or you you go and you don't feel as afraid to go and introduce yourself and say, I'm you know, I'd love to put myself forward for this. Whereas I think, you know, five, six years ago I wouldn't have felt as confident in doing that. So I really think that it was that resting period that we were all put into where I was able to reconnect obviously my kids are a bit older now yeah my kids are getting into music um so yeah that was that was kind of how I I suppose re-entered it um and yeah just having radio shows has been helpful and being part of that collective and obviously having a really supportive partner who who totally gets it awesome so something that's shone through in this podcast is just your level of passion not only with the doors that music's opened for you, but the, the the lessons, the principles it's taught you. Um, 
and it's been quite unique compared to the other guys like there's loads of stuff we've not covered about your journey that that we may have touched upon when we chatted previously um but just one last thing then to ask you is what would be your your kind of key piece of advice for anyone who's looking to start DJing start with the music that you love and um you're you're never really going to go wrong there uh there's always more music to be found you know we've got amazing technology now um you know and i i i'm still finding tunes that are old tunes but i'm not finding it through going through records because i you know i'm not able to go out crate digging as much so i've still got all my responsibilities but you know making use of all of that technology you've got there and going on some of those you know treasure hunts with music is is really really valuable learn about your um lineage learn about the music um timelines and what culture is attached to that and and really kind of get into that because i think once you once you understand your place in it all um it's a lot easier for you to go back and to to think forward and and realize that we're all kind of part of a musical conversation and we're all part of sharing something together. So for me, it's about finding your voice, finding playing the stuff that fills your soul um, and it moves you or it makes you feel something deep, deep down inside. And playing from the heart is really, really important. It's the most important thing to connect with other people. I've never been like a hands in the air kind of, you know, tension release drop. I love a I love a good drop in a in a, a tune and, and what have you. But also for me, it's about the journey. So go and listen to some of those seminal DJs, go and listen to uh, Francois K, go and listen to some old mixes and, and what have you from from back in the day, back in the 90s. Go and listen to Larry Levan mixes. There's loads of compilations out there. There's loads of stuff. And then you'll start building up that picture of, of what resonates with you and what doesn't. And then always play from there. Have your key tracks at always lift you up because whatever is lifting you up will always resonate out to other people whether you're playing on a radio show or whether you're playing in front of thousands of people that's amazing you've got to have some of those tracks that are mean something to you and that you want to put that out there and then you'll you'll always have you know tracks that relate to it in one way or another but just just have those this is me you know I'll play this tune till the day I die kind of thing and, and just have some of those things in your arsenal when, you, when you're playing and the, and the rest of it will make sense. You know, when I was playing the four or five hour set, so it would always be like one one tune for you kind of thing that I know you'll all like, three tunes for me and I would, you know, kind of have that give and take for my own journey as well as theirs and, and it's about that kind of call and response is the job of a DJ. Yeah. You know, yeah. And and I think just being mindful of that um and and making sure what you're calling to people uh is positive because we need more of that in the world amazing um where can people find you online i am on instagram i'm annoyingly an underscore sarah underscore sweeney on instagram um i've got mixed cloud which you can find in my bio please do check out eavesdrop collective as well because they are a phenomenal collective of uh women selectors and where do we find them is there an instagram page yeah there's an instagram page there is a website coming up um you'll be able to see me 
playing at We Out here this year. I'll be at Set. Uh, I play at a place called Paradise Garden here in Cardiff. I play in Bristol. I play in London. So, you know, there's always a way. And I've got a radio, I've got a radio show as well. So I play one the first Thursday of every month on 1BTN. Um, I play 8 till 10 there, um, which is always available for a listen back as well. So there's plenty of ways to find me. And I'm always around, so yeah, there you go. Awesome. That's been a gr- uh, brilliant conversation. So thanks very much for your time. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been really good. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at once a DJ podcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon. Oh, that was nice.